Detroit in the 1950s was a place where Black people still had to dream of political representation. There were no Black members of city council or any other Black elected officials in city government. The city was still reluctant to accept the idea of Black equality, emphasized by the riots in 1943, aimed at keeping Black auto workers out of what were considered to be white jobs. At this moment, as Commander-in-Chief of the military forces of the state of Michigan, I hereby declare a state of emergency exists. And there is the, the 1950 census and the redistricting that followed saw the creation of Detroit's first majority black congressional district. As Detroit becomes America's blackest city, in Congress, the city sends an African-American to Washington for nearly 70 years straight. And then 2022 happened. In Michigan's 13th congressional district that makes up most of Detroit, State Representative Sri Tanadar was victorious. The Democrat spoke in Greek town about his legislative priorities. People should be able to take care of their health care needs. I'm going to fight for uh, passing a single-payer health care. Sri Tanadar, an Indian-American immigrant who has lived in Detroit for only two years, defeats a broad spectrum of nine highly qualified African-American candidates for the last Black-represented seat in the state. What does Black representation actually mean in 2022? Like, what does it mean in a city like Detroit, the nation's blackest big city, in terms of percentage? And does the loss of black representation in Congress foreshadow a more devastating loss of power and a voice and self-determination? And honestly, how in the world did this all come to pass? From the newsroom of Rich Detroit and produced by WDET, Detroit's public radio station, this is What Had Happened Was... A look at how America's blackest city blew 70 years of black representation in Congress. We will dive deeply into all the dynamics and details of what happened in the 13th Congressional District and what has happened to black political power in Detroit. The stories here all overlap, they intertwine, and share common origins that make the outcomes even more surprising. First, we need to make clear, literally, how all this happened. The redraw of congressional districts in 2021 produced two seats for the city of Detroit in the 12th and the 13th districts. But in both cases, Detroit would share that representation with suburban communities that have substantial white populations. By the numbers, Detroit should have had a great chance to at least elect one African-American. But it did not work out that way. A flurry of congressional political moves in the last 48 hours means there's a metro Detroit congressional district that's going to be up for grabs. The gold rush has begun. And if you heard a buzzing sound in Detroit today, it was the political class on the phone calling around to see who's going to run in the 13th congressional district. In all, nine black candidates would file for the 13th district and one Indian-American immigrant Sri Tanadar would run as well. The split amongst Black voters would mean that Tanadar, a millionaire who already represented part of Detroit in the legislature, could spend his money wooing suburban voters and win with a slim plurality of the vote. Conversations with some of the principals in the race suggest a swirl of individual interests, all disconnected and working independently, overwhelmed the broader concerns about representation. The committee picked the candidate who had the best chance to win. That was Black. That was me. 
And there's no question about that. That's Adam Ollier talking with Bridge Detroit editor Catherine Kelly. He's a black man, a military veteran who already represented a part of Detroit in the state Senate. He finished second to the winner, Sri Tanadar. Let's talk a little bit about the congressional seat. Um, what does black representation mean to you? Yeah, so I think for me, it's the kind of difference between the way I went to school versus other people. So when you go to school in DPS, you read black authors, you understand about the kind of thing that most people don't get until they go to college. You don't feel like you are a minority in every space that you are. You feel like this is your space and that there is someone who is looking out for you who has a similar understanding of your issues, right? Like the same person who is driving down the street and seeing uh, that person who has been victimized by crack or, you know, prostitution is living that life. And instead of looking at them as other, they are saying, well, how do I fix this? Right. So I, I live on Woodward. And when I first moved in, I had a, a issue with prostitution on my corner. And at the beginning, I was like, all right, I got to clean up my corner. And then as I got older, I realized that the people who were working on my corner needed support. And they were doing it on my corner because my corner was well lit and it was safer than some of the other places. And so as a legislator, I've been involved in supporting black trans women who are often pushed into sex work because they don't have other options. And the reason black representation is so important is because we have a similar life experience, right? We are sending our kids to the same kind of schools, right? We are going through those same kind of things. When my daughter was at daycare and there were more white kids, she was having issues with our hair at three. So race for you as a, as a life experience thing, is it what are the issues that a black representative needs to um, pin down or champion? Access. As we talk about this space, the, the biggest thing about being black is understanding the difference in access and competition because you are never not black, right? I, I'm a captain in the United States Army. And when I'm in uniform, white women, older white women will send their daughters up to go shake my hand and say, thank you. If I was in a suit and tie, they would hold their purses. And I think there's a huge difference in that space and being able to open spaces. Organizations like Invest Detroit, when I meet with them, I am not talking to them about, you know, their bottom line. I'm like, hey, how many black developers have you funded this year? And they're like, oh, hey, you know, and so Dave Blasco was over at Invest Detroit. When he sees me, he's like, hey, Senator, this is what we got going on. We're going to invest, you know, these these developers, these minority folks. This is what we've done. And he's like, but I mean, I'm having trouble with this. I'm like, no, I'll, I'll get rid of that. You, you let me know what you need to do that, right? Like it's going to organizations like the Ruth Ellis Center and saying, no, I'm your, I got you. You tell me what you need and we do it. It's investing in our institutions that move the needle. It's saying that Wayne State is the most important university for black people in the state because they're moving forward, because they're in our community, because they're providing opportunities for black kids. And, and that the, hasn't happened enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Talk to me a little bit about how you think, I mean, you worked on uh, redistricting, mm -hmm. you know, early on. How do you think race is playing into, we saw what has happened uh, with some of the early results from the primary, uh, you know, how is race figuring into um, uh, these state these state races and what will representation look like in Lansing? So when we started this process, the Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission said that their goal was to draw districts that were no more than 35% black. And they said that because they were, and I'm air quoting here, uh, unpacking black communities. That's not what they did. They cracked black communities 
the history of racial segregation in the state of Michigan means that there are very few black communities with a Republican community adjacent. So what you have is you have a black community and then a white community that is largely working class, largely Democratic, and then a Republican community that's usually more rural. And so in a number of places across the country, there is not that same level of buffer because there is not the same level of segregation that exists in our region. And so all the districts that they drew were just still Democratic districts, right? It's just instead of them being a 51, 50, 70 percent black district, now they are a 40 percent black district and a 60 percent white district. So on a on a statewide level, I mean, you know, again, like what are the issues, the laws, the decisions that will change as a result of the dilution? Your funding priorities are going to change fundamentally. The ability to leverage and marshal votes around uh, equity, around the Detroit Public Schools Community District and some of the things that were required in that space, funding the programs. I mean, the Racial Justice Task Force uh, that Governor Whitmer set up is not going to be funded and supported the same kind of way. Those issues are not going to be pushed because the people who advocated for them aren't going to be in those spaces anymore. And I think that's really meaningful. So some people would argue, well, now you have all these suburban representatives who now represent a portion of Detroit. Yes, a portion, not a majority of Detroit. And the majority of their electorate, their path to reelection is not in that base. And so you're going to lose the impetus to value those folks above all others. And also, as you know, I think people struggle to deal with it, but there's some kind of people that only black people will elect. Right. And we need to have those folks in legislature, people who are just so incredibly pro-black that there are no white people who are going to vote for them. And we used to be able to have those folks in the legislature. There are white folks in the legislature who are so pro their space that they could not get elected in black communities. But there is never a situation. There is never a spot in this state or even in this country where they have to rely on black voters. But now we've made it relying on almost every seat to get a coalition of white voters to elect someone. So you, in other interviews, you've talked about the importance of being kind of a middle of the aisle political person. In such a strongly democratic district, when a lot of Detroiters, you know, might be looking for that one candidate that, you know, what does that mean to you? So I talk about being effective, right? If you look at my stance on issues, I'm not a... I'm not a moderate waffly person, right? Like I'm not the person who is ideologically in the center of the aisle. I am physically in the center of the aisle because that's where work gets done, right? So I serve in a minority. If I was in the majority, I would not have to work with Republicans because I'd be in charge. They'd have to work with me. But that's not where I existed in my legislative career. When we talk about reparations have been all in as we talk about, you know, protecting infant mortality. We talk about being pro-black on a development standpoint, being a leader on economic development tools, on access for, you know, labor, working on labor issues. I'm always right where I should be ideologically on these issues, certainly aligned with the folks who I represent. The question is, what can we get done? And I believe strongly that my job is to move the ball forward. It is not to make the speech about how we could have got something done because my people aren't comfortable. They're not, you know, in a position where if I don't do something, it's going to happen. Otherwise, they need movement. 
Um, why do you think uh, in Michigan the Republicans are currently a bit more successful at um, <laughs> moving black candidates forward than the Democrats? I think Republicans, uh, particularly as, as you look at like a, a John James, they got one person and that's an easy spell because they're like, hey, they don't need to win black voters. They need to lose black voters by less. And so if they have, you know, their math is if they can convince two or three or four or five percent of black voters to vote for them, then they win. And they figure if they get a candidate like a John James, they can do that. Is that black representation? To some extent, it's not mm-hmm. the kind of representation that I want because he's not going to be working on the kind of issues that we talked about. So when we talked about black representation, there are two parts, right? So there is the, can my child see themselves in them? And certainly there is the color that, that, that plays a role. It says, hey, that there is a space. But the bigger thing is, are they moving the policies and working on the issues that advance us as a people? And I think uh, Republicans have shown that they are not willing to do that because we understand that, that there is no way to be both in that sunken place and to be supportive of black folks and black issues. Because the challenge that we have in the black community is we don't have enough people who are sitting in a space and then moving out of the black space, right? So too many institutions have a black seat. You have a black person sitting at the black seat. That black person then needs to move into a white seat or so that some other black person can sit in that black space. You mentioned that Virgie Rollins tapped you to run. Uh, and I, I believe she's a part of the Legacy Committee for United Leadership, um, the group that Warren Evans convened uh, to, so, to get behind rally support around a single candidate. So can you talk to me a little bit about the selection process? Um, you know, there's been some criticism uh, that the group is made up of um, mostly older men. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to me about this selection process and uh, do you think it was fair? Um, and why do you think you were chosen? Yeah, so Virgie was not a participant because okay. she was already she was already in with me. And I think the expectation about everybody who participated in that process was that they would be uncommitted. The critique that there were too many men in the room speaks to our institutions in, in a lot of ways, in a lot of spaces, right? So the Wayne County executive is a, is a black man, uh, but the county prosecutor was a black woman. She did not participate in the process because she had already made a decision. So as much as I think there was this discussion about, well, were there enough women in these rooms? I think the point was that so many of the black women were already committed and unwilling to make a decision that did not result in a black woman winning. But this process was the most open political endorsement process I've ever seen or been a part of, right? You could go today and look at the interviews on YouTube. They had the same people ask all the same questions. They voted three times. And Congresswoman Lawrence was a part of that process. And when they selected me, her, and it's my understanding, a number of the women who were supporting a, you know, who ultimately supported Portia, left that process. So it's not that they were not a part of the process. It's that their preferred candidate was not selected. And so they supported somebody else. But there were still lots of women who were a part of the process. I mean, whether it was Edna Bell or Yvette McElroy Anderson, people who run and have been involved in important institutions. Mm -hmm. We talked to one leader when um, 
a woman leader when we were doing our coverage of what mm-hmm. happened in the 13th who said, educated, highly qualified black women don't seem to get the same shot as their male counterparts. How do you respond to that? Do you have an advantage? Because I'm a man? Yeah, I'm a man. I mean, we live in a world where there is certainly patriarchy and sexism. All of those things are true. I would push back in Detroit, though. There is a a lean towards a black woman. You are more black women leaders. There are more black women elected. And every discussion that starts with, well, you know, a black woman is going to beat a black man. So in this space, that's not the case, right? Like I am the aside from Warren Evans, elected in the city of Detroit, there are two black state senators. There are three black women. There are going to be three women in the Senate going forward and none in the Senate. There are going to be three black men in the House. There are more, you know, city council president is a black woman and has been a black woman the last three city council presidents, four last five. I mean, Detroiters, by and large, have elected black women to lead way more often than not. But you mentioned patriar- patriarchy, and sometimes gender doesn't mean that a woman can't be patriarchal. And, you know, you know. also in when you look at the executive positions, a lot of them have mostly been occupied by men, which is, mm-hmm. as you point out, very different than the legislature. So it was a clear concern for a lot of people in the 13th race that A lot of men, older men, got in a room, made the decision. I mean, do you think the selection of uh, you being a black male, understanding also the the challenges black men face, do you feel like that then served residents of the city of Detroit? Do you think, or the, the 13th district, do you think that was the best decision? I think it was the best decision that people could make to try and get together in a room. The county executive invited people to the table. The only ask was that you were open to the group picking a, you know, making a selection, right? I think a lot was made that this was a black man only discussion. It wasn't. Black women were in the room. They were a part of the process. And a significant number of black women supported me, right? So Nia Winston who is the only black woman who runs a major labor union in the area and is, you know, executive vice president of Unite Here, was one of my first and ard- you know, most ardent supporters, right? Virgie Rollins was in the space. You know, Yvette McElroy Anderson, who runs Fannie Lou Hamer Pack, right? Edna Bell, who was a county commissioner. And I think being a man was a hindrance to me in this race, right? Like if I had been a black woman, I think People would not have had the same angst about this discussion. There has been no clamor that a black man should be in these positions from discussions. And every part of this discussion has been, well, were there enough black women in the room? My goal in this seat was to make sure that a black person continued to operate it. I represent a third of the congressional district today. uh, And I think the results on election day show that I ran the best campaign of any black candidate. I was the most organized. I raised the most money. We knocked the most doors. We got more votes than anyone and it, by a large margin, mm-hmm. right? So black women are the largest voting block in the city of Detroit. And I think a number of folks would have said certainly the largest voting block in the 13th congressional district. Seven out of 10 people voted for a man in this district. You mentioned money. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about money. <laughs> um, you had a significant cash advantage um, 
except for over most of the candidates, except for one. True. <laughs> um, so why did? You, but you still weren't successful. So mm-hmm. what? What do you think happened? I mean, there are too many people in the race. You know, fundamentally, that was the big difference. And it was time was when money came. So Sri Tanadar won this race because he won absentees. He got a little over 30% of the absentee vote. More people voted uh, absentee than on election day. And he had spent $2 million before absentee ballots went out. That's where he won this race, right? I got a larger share on election day and cut his lead almost in half uh, with a smaller number of people, you know, showing up. But I had to raise money. And I know that there are the narrative out there is, well, you know, you had so much more money. Like I was like, yeah, but I had to spend all the time in the world on the phone, calling people and asking them for money. Right. This was not some race where the, the spread on who got support was that different. So Portia Roberson and I were in the, the space where people were like, Oh, well, you know, it's going to be one of them. Portia had just as many endorsements as I did. She got the, you know, Free Press had, you know, labor endorsements had, you know, Emily's List had the sitting congresswoman, right? Like this was not something where I had everything and things were easy. I had to go out and work for it. And I think if you look back into this space in March or April uh, and May, no one had any expectation that I was going to raise money the way that I did. And people are like, oh, well, how did you do it? I sat on the phone and I called people all day, every day. I raised more money in the first quarter than anyone else raised at all. But let's talk a little bit about the other money that mm-hmm. um, that that was involved in in your race and supporting yeah. you. A lot of um, pro-Israel mm-hmm. uh, money came in and really helped you a lot, um, yeah. especially towards the end, especially in terms of raising. No question. And, mm-hmm. So. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how you got that support and how some of those interests may or may not align with um, voters' priorities in the 13th district? Yeah, I think there's always this discussion of, well, what about this group, right? Like the, Israel's not a big issue for a, a significant population in the city of Detroit. But there are still a lot of very prominent and involved Jewish members of our community, right? So Dan Gilbert is Jewish. Gary Torgo is Jewish. I mean, if you really sit down and you think about a significant number of the people who are making significant investments, who are involved in the city, we have a large Jewish community that has always been involved with the black community, right? Like there's a huge old you know temple right down the street from my house, right? Like the Jewish community have always played a role in this space. And I think in this district, uh, they continue to do so. And we're so involved because, you know, Representative Tanadar uh, supported a resolution calling Israel an apartheid state and, you know, calling for uh, all their military aid to be canceled. That is the biggest red flag in the world for them. So it's not necessarily that they love me so much as much as they were very committed, I think, to ensuring that they did not have two members from Detroit who were decidedly uh, anti-Israel from their perspective. So did and, some of those interests help uh, raise your name up to these different parties? How, how did that work? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's always a kind of weird space because I can't coordinate with mm-hmm. any of those folks, sure. right? So like I woke up one day and was like, people were like, hey, I saw your TV ad. And I was like, you did what? They're like, I saw your TV ad. It's great. And I was like, Okay, I'm trying. What what network did you see it on? I'm trying to find it, right? So it was also kind of weird because I didn't have control over that message, right? So I couldn't say, 
hey, talk about this, do that. They did, and I'm grateful that they did. But they spent because Sri Tanadar was spending in a way that was astronomical. I mean, he spent more money than all but one other self-funder running for Congress in the entire country. It was a huge differential, right? Like they were like, well, can you buy a seat? Apparently you can because he did not have the support of community groups. He didn't have the support of other people. He had the ability to be on TV all day, every day, you know, to the tune of millions of dollars. You know, 1,400 points of negative TV ads on me in just the last two weeks, which is super impactful. It didn't move his numbers, but it made some people who were going to vote for me vote for one of the other candidates. Have you met with uh, Shri Tanador? Yeah, I sat um, down with him. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit about that? That was weird. It's a very weird. I mean, it's a. I don't want to say anything negative about Shri, so I'm going to try and frame this in a way that does not seem like I'm doing that. But he's a weird guy, right? Like, he was like, hey, what do you think I should be doing to um, heal folks? I'm like, dude, you won. That's a a you thing. Like, what do we think the the plan should be? Your plan. Do what you told people you were going to do. And he said he was going to be the most progressive, you know, whatever. And now he's saying he's going to be a moderate pro-business Democrat. I don't know how to wrap my mind around those kind of things. He says things like he wants to be in the Black Caucus. Well, you can't because you're not black, right? Like, I think he wanted to be in Congress and I think he wants to be in elected office more than he has a plan for what he wants to get done. And I feel like that's what came across in our meeting. We talked about black representation and it wasn't about, do you look like me? Are we the same complexion? Because... Shri's not white, but he doesn't know what it's like to be black. He doesn't know what it's like to raise black kids. He doesn't understand those kind of issues, but that's the people he's got to represent, right? Like I had to learn how to represent white people in Gross Point, right? Because our interests are different. Our experiences are different. And I think he was making it, I think he made it clear that he didn't get it. I don't think that's great for our city. In what ways do you think um, he made that clear? I worked with him, you know, as a colleague in the legislature. He was never working on issues that I think were deeply impactful. It was just the showy things, right? Like he wanted to be out front on reparations, but wasn't talking about real employment, right? Like he voted no on the economic development tools that were going to bring jobs to Michigan that do those kind of things that allow us to build a space. And some people do those kind of things very passionately and they have a plan. And they're like, hey, it should be about these kind of things. But he didn't do that. It was just progressives are a no on that. So he was a no on that. And so if he's not actually that progressively ideological, what's the North Star on how you get things done? And and that was the thing that I didn't see. So I think whoever advises him is going to be really important. Like where are they interest? Where are they at? Because... It's not in his soul. So can a non-black person represent black people? Absolutely. Non-black people have been representing black people more exclusively than black people have. I mean, we have a small history and a small number of black people who are actually able to be represented by How do they do a good job? Like, what is the difference? What what makes it different? How do you, what what makes a good um, non-black representative? Yeah, somebody who understands that first that they aren't black, and second that being black is different. 
right? So I think we've gotten past this moment where people thought colorblindness was an acceptable or an appropriate thing. You have to recognize the challenges of what it means to be black in context and to work to address them. We absolutely need more champions of black issues excuse me, who are not black because they are talking to their friends who are the problem. You know, they are talking to their community that are a problem in the oppressive space. Right? So it's not to say that every white person is oppressive or a part of the problem, but they are going to have more ability to impact the other white people who are the same way. Every man is not sexist, but men are the ones who have to check other men on these kind of things because we're the problem. And so as people recognize the role that they play in that space, they do a better job representing black communities by understanding the differences and seeking to address them, understanding their own privileges, because we all have privileges from a variety of spaces. It's when we recognize our privileges and start to understand the differences that they have and we leverage them for other groups and other communities. And so non-black representatives uh, do a good job of doing that and empowering people behind them and through them and in these spaces by lending their power and influence. I think the governor does a good job, right? So the governor has nominated uh, more black people to boards and commissions and empowered them, recognizing that she can't share that same space, right? In more directors and appointing them into those positions. It's really important that you... Bring is that, that enough, though? I'm going to push no. you on that. Like, no. I mean, it's never we're enough. talking a lot about like access, experience, you know, and, um, you know, I just, I'm just, I would like to be more specific about that. Pin that down a little bit. It's not enough. Like, if you are a black woman and you want someone who is going to best represent you, it's someone who has the most life experience. You, let's take whatever you are. The person who has the most life experience is going to do the best job representing you. And it's about what portion of your identity is most impactful to you. And so, so why do you think that one group that convened to select the candidate, why did they miss that? I don't think they missed it. I think they picked the candidate who was best suited to do the space. I mean, I, I lost by four. The next person who was a part of, you know, their finalists, right? So the, I think the person who got the second most votes got the third most votes, but she got 11, she lost by 11 points. You know, she was closer to getting half as many votes to Sheree as not. So I, I think that, that that's an important part to, to make the point of. The committee picked the candidate who had the best chance to win. That was black. That was me. And there's no question about that. Now, is that the person that some of the black women would have preferred? No. But it's also not fair to say that all black women were unhappy with that selection because there are more black women in this district than black men. And ostensibly more of them voted for me than any of the black women who were running. And that's noting that this is the year um, that black women won almost every seat. I like there you you can't look out in the state and find another seat where a black woman was on the ballot and a black man was on the ballot and the black man won or got more votes than them. So, so I think that talks about the specifics of this race and this field. So what's next for you? 
I woke up after election day and said, hey, how do I do the things that I ran on anyway, right? And so we did an affordable housing summit that we're going to continue to do to work on that work because that was my number one priority. And I said to myself, if that was my number one priority, that's the work I'm going to continue to keep doing. I love economic development. I think it is the most important thing in black communities. We talk about access and control of space and opportunity. And so I'm going to be doing something that, gives black folks more opportunities. And so I want to continue to be empowering in that space. I haven't figured out exactly what's next, but it's going to be something nearby and it's going to be doing the kind of work that I've been doing as a legislator and for the rest of my life, right? Like I want to be doing the hard things and the hard things are making people in neighborhoods lives better because I recognize how much neighborhoods have changed, right? So I live two blocks from my parents in the neighborhood I was born and raised in and since that time, I think I've had three or four black neighbors move in. And it's great that we have neighbors that have moved in and property values have gone up. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I need communities to continue to be open and inviting to folks, right? Like my, most of my daughter's neighborhood school friends are white because that's the age of kids in school. Coming soon in episode two of What Had Happened Was, we'll meet the two people who will now represent Detroit in Congress, Sri Tanadar and Rashida Tlaib. And we'll hear from both about how they connect with and plan to represent the city's black majority. The What Had Happened Was podcast is produced by Bridge Detroit in conjunction with 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. The series was created by Stephen Henderson and hosted by Ashley Stevenson. Interviews were conducted by Katherine Kelly, Orlando Bailey, Malachi Barrett, and Stephen Henderson of Bridge Detroit. The executive producer and interview editor for the series is Stephen Henderson. Recorded by Connor Anderson. Audio engineering for the series and music created by Sam Bobian.